0: Glad to have B.J. a part of our fellowship, and I have asked him to speak tonight. B.J. has a Master's in Christian Apologetics and also a Master's and Ph.D. in Philosophy, a uh, background in Philosophy of Religion, Philosophical Theology, and Historical Philosophy. His focused studies involve the intersection of theology, philosophy, apologetics, and Biblical Interpretation. Uh, He is an adjunct professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary as well as Liberty University. And he teaches high school classes up in Mount Airy as well. And um, so he has plenty of opportunity to plant seeds of truth. And he takes advantage of that. He presented a debate. ...on the evidences of the resurrection between a theist, a believer, and one who is an atheist. And some of the class were astounded at how little evidence there is against the resurrection. So, I thought you would enjoy and appreciate hearing that this evening he's going to present that... ...probably somewhat in an encapsulated form. Thank you, BJ, for coming tonight. This is not just for our information, okay? This is equipping for us to be able to plant seeds of truth graciously, lovingly, plant seeds of truth... In the marketplace. Good evening, everyone. The presentation
1: you're going to hear, I usually teach in about a 16 week course. So i try to condense about 50 hours of lecture into uh, three hours for you. No, just kidding. <laughs> so, though I have a lot of extra text I brought just in case I need backup, um, there's some great resources we have available to us because our, our position is true. So, uh, a little bit about my background before I went into this. I was raised Roman Catholic. I lost my faith at college. And then I challenged a Christian co-worker after I took a uh, philosophy class from an atheistic professor. And uh, I, he gave me all these tools of critical thinking. And so I said to a Christian co-worker, I said, give me your best evidence that Christianity is true. And I'll show you what's wrong with it. So he gave me a little Christian apologetics book. And you know, since then, I, I told him, man, you just... Changed my life. He's like, I just wanted to refute you. I didn't care about getting you saved. I didn't have the right motives. I was like, but the evidence was overwhelming. I just never experienced anything like it. It was, it was amazing. I'd been lied to for my entire bachelor's degree. And this is part of that evidence, especially the evidence for the resurrection. I was just blown away. I had some texts by, um, some New Testament scholars who are atheists and, and their uh, alternate naturalistic explanations versus uh, the miraculous resurrection. I was like, "Oh, that couldn't have happened. Oh man, I, I just can't believe this. I've been lied to. I need to get this information in the hands of other believers. So I told my parents, I said, I'm not going to med school. I'm going to go to seminary. And they're like, oh my goodness, what? Who's going to take care of us? I was like, oh, I'll still take care of you. They like, said, you're going to seminary. And I was as raised Roman Catholic. My mom's like, I'm never going to have any grandkids. I was like, oh, don't worry, I'm a Protestant now. She was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, so kids, I might be you know, I I went to get my PhD and I joke with my mom. I, I think I got the wrong doctorate, um the PhD, poor hungry doctor. So that's okay. So this is this is just a little snippet and I'll try to give you some tools that you can use when you're sharing the faith with other people who are questioning how do we know that the resurrection really occurred. So You could probably do a two-minute synopsis, a real quick way to share it with other people. But if you have an hour, you could spend an entire hour dialoguing with unbelievers and skeptics. And hopefully it will shore up your faith as well. So I hope you're encouraged. So first we're going to discuss the nature of historical evidence. The reason this is important is because a lot of atheists that I've met, one of their main objections is, well, we don't see miracles normally occurring. You know, if you told me that on your way here, you saw a pink elephant, I wouldn't believe that because I've never seen a pink elephant before. That's just not in my experience. And so I would have a hard time believing you. Now, the funny thing, I actually heard an atheist use this. In, in the debate I, I played at the school a couple weeks ago between the, the atheist and the Christian as to whether... Jesus rose from the dead. He used the example of, well, if you told me on your way to the debate you saw a pink elephant, there's actually a YouTube video where this police officer pulls somebody over and they walk this pink elephant out. And then they lead the pink elephant back into an alley. And then when the officer turns around, this woman in a pink dress, who's a bigger woman, she walks out and he's like, there's a pink elephant right behind you. And the officer turns around, there's a big lady in a pink dress. He's like, that's not very funny, sir. (laughs) he's like, well, actually, in this video, you actually saw a pink elephant. They use it as as a comedy skit. So what you actually have to look at are other factors. Like how is historical evidence given to us? It's different than other types of evidence. And so that's one of the things you look at when you're actually looking at historical events and what discounts historical evidence we're going to actually examine some of the evidence and i'll give you this acronym to help you remember it in a summary form we're going to look at all the naturalistic alternatives and hopefully we have a little give and take and you'll be able to refute those before you leave us today and then here's an exciting thing that a lot of my high schoolers were bringing up to me and then my college students would bring this up i don't know if you're aware there's a youtube video called zeitgeist It's not new to Zeitgeist, but Zeitgeist is the one that's popularizing among the kids in in college and high school, where they basically say, the early Christians, they just borrowed from pagan mystery religions. Their account of the resurrection actually wasn't a historical event. It just occurred really late, and you know, in the third, fourth century, They started borrowing from pagan mystery religions about a dying and rising God. So I'm going to look at at that a little bit and give you a way to respond to that criticism. But at least the younger generation, a lot of them have been exposed to this. One of the uh, young ladies who I teach up in Mount Airy, uh, she's an atheist. Her dad's an atheist. And this is the theory that he espouses, is that it's a a really late development, uh, the Christian gospel of uh, Jesus' resurrection actually didn't occur till maybe early 3rd century. And any accounts that uh, Christians say they got, they're just borrowing it from pagan mystery religions. It's not original to them. So I'll give you a way to respond to that. So here's the logical alternatives. If you just look at it, either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. So if he died, then the explanation we have is the resurrection. But the naturalistic alternatives, if he died, the disciples just hallucinated. There was a later myth. He he died, but later Christians made up that he rose from the dead. It's just a very late development, and so they made up this myth. Or the disciples all colluded together, and they said, Hey, let's start our own religion. We'll have this, this big conspiracy, and we'll all agree to the facts. And we'll say, we actually saw Jesus alive after his death. Let's hold to this. And no matter what anybody does to us, you know, maybe we have something to gain from it. Those are the options on that. If Jesus didn't die, the only alternative left is that he just swooned on the cross. So these are logically exhaustive. Now, one of my students gave me another one. He says, well, what if Jesus was an alien, part of a UFO? Conspiracy. I'm like, well, you just like went off the reservation and no, no scholar is going to uh, seriously address that. So I've heard that theory, but in the realm of plausibility, we can't really consider the UFO, Jesus was an alien theory. Okay. So the nature of historical evidence, when you think about science, when we do experiments in a lab, it's called empirical science. So what, what do they look for? Well, we have to be able to repeat the test again and again, and then we say, okay, if you could repeat the test, you've actually proven something in a science lab. That's not how history is. So your birth was unique. It was a unique event in all of history. It's also not mathematical. So you can't have, okay, what was the quadratic equation? You take that and you you put it over pi and you could prove that Lincoln was assassinated on a certain date. That's just not how things like that work. Historical evidence isn't proved mathematically. So, People often say, oh, unless you can mathematically prove to me whatever it is, I'm not going to believe it. Well, that's just not the way history works. History is not a mathematical study. So every discipline has its own way of accessing the information. And so any of you uh, have seen any of the CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Forensic Science is really popular, or NCIS, it's always about the forensic evidence. And so when they're looking at the forensic evidence, how is it they access that? That's what we do in history. We look at, okay, what is the forensic evidence? So there's certain things we look at when we look at a resurrection. But just realize, it's not mathematical. But that doesn't falsify our view, just because it's not mathematical. I've had um, atheists say, unless you could prove mathematically to me that God exists, I'm not going to believe it. I was like, well... I could show you that it's mathematically impossible that he doesn't exist. I could do that. But that's just bizarre because existence is a different kind of thing than mathematics. And so what if I told you, hey, unless you can mathematically prove to me that you have a dog, what if I just show you my dog? I'm not mathematically proving that I have a dog. I just showed it to you. You're not going to believe me. I just brought my dog in. It doesn't need to be a mathematical proof. There's other types of proof. It's not all proof is mathematical. You use mathematical proofs to prove mathematical formulas. That's, that's the proper realm for mathematical proofs. Other types of proofs need whatever's proper to that discipline. So we're going to be looking at the historical evidence. And all historians recognize this, but unfortunately it hasn't made it out to the popular audience. So these are things that are raised by popular atheists, the new atheist crowd. So here's an early Christian creed that hopefully you're all familiar with that both Christian and non-Christian scholars, atheistic professor of the New Testament, Gerd Ludemann says this was written within a decade of Jesus' death. All critical scholars accept that this is an early Christian creed anywhere between three to ten years after Jesus' death. So let's listen to what this says. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Who's writing this? Paul. So he he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses here in this early account. He died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Then he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the Twelve. Now, who is James? Jesus' brother. Okay. So if you remember earlier in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' family coming to get him, they thought he was out of his mind. His mother and his brothers came because they thought he was crazy. And they came to gather him. When there's things like that, there's things like Peter denying Jesus. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing for James. This is embarrassing for Jesus' mother. This is embarrassing for Simon Peter that he denied Jesus. So, why are they included in the Gospels? Why would you include something that's embarrassing? Because it actually happened. That's exactly right. So, that's what you find. It was the first person that Jesus appeared to, Mary. Okay, what's weird about that? Yeah, okay, so what's weird about it being a woman? So women couldn't give testimony in court. So that's bizarre that you would include a woman unless it actually happened. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't include that detail in there. Or Jesus writing with his finger on the ground in John's Gospel. Things like this. A lot of scholars debate, this is just such a weird detail. And yeah, there's debate over why he did that. You would only include small details like that, embarrassing details. That actually testifies to the reliability of the New Testament. So here's a passage that even the most critical scholars who don't believe what we believe, they all affirm this. That this early Christian creed occurred well within the lifetime. And that's important for refuting a lot of these theories. I don't know if you've heard of Gary Habermas, one of the leading scholars in the world on the resurrection. did does doctoral dissertation on the resurrection of Jesus. He's got this book, The Historical Jesus. And one of the things he does is he'll stand across the stage and he'll say, okay, we'll say this period right here marks Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, And we'll say the timeline goes out that way. And we'll say over here is about 100 AD. Okay, How close can we get to over there for Jesus' death and resurrection? And then he starts whittling down. And once he gets to this early Christian creed, which is about a decade after, okay, so he gets really close, but if that's 100 years out, you have this early Christian creed here. And how do they know that this is an early Christian creed? For what I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance. This is the introduction to a creed. So that's like when you see this, there's a formulation in the New Testament telling you there's a couple early creeds. This is one of the formulations. You'll see this pattern over and over. For what I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance. So you got to within like 10 years with this. But this creed here is even earlier than that because he actually received it. When did he receive it? Well, it says in Galatians 1 when he received it. A short time after he's persecuting the early church, Jesus himself appears to Paul and he gave him this. And then in Galatians 1, he corroborates this message he'd been given and he appears and he interviews John and Peter and the brother of the Lord. And he makes sure that he wasn't running his race in vain and that he was actually preaching the gospel. So how close does that get? Well, that gets you to within one to three years. That's super early. And even critics will give you Galatians 1 and this 1 Corinthians 15. These are atheistic, critical scholars. So when they're debating, they have a hard time with this. And so one of the things Gary Habermas likes to do, he's a professor at Liberty University, he debates these guys and he says, I'm not even giving you the things that evangelicals want to argue for. I'm giving you all your data and I can show you that Jesus rose from the dead with your data. That you'll give me. It's a very persuasive case. So we have a very early account here in 1 Corinthians. So that's just something cool to know. Okay, so here's the thing I'm going to ask you to memorize. Okay, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest feat in history. F-E-A-T. And each one of those letters stands for one of these. Fatal torment. That's the F. E, empty tomb. A, appearance. T, transformation. So we'll go into a little more detail on these, but if you remember this, the feet. You could use the word feet, the greatest feat in history, to always defend the resurrection. Jesus was fatally tormented. You could dispense of one of the naturalistic theories once you can establish that he was fatally tormented. Feet, that's the F. E, the tomb was empty. What was the earliest testimony that the Jews gave? The body was stolen, which presupposes the empty tomb. So they didn't say, hey, here he is. He's still in the tomb. What are you talking about? He's risen. You know, that would be the easy way up for the disciples to go the Jehovah's Witness route. Oh, yeah, he didn't physically raise the dead. He was a ghost. Well, of course, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then he ate with them and he was touched by them at the end of Luke. So the tomb was empty. There's a decree early on, uh, shortly within a decade after Jesus' resurrection, that started testifying that no one's allowed to steal the bodies from any graves, and if they do, they're going to be under the uh, penalty of Roman law. So why did they invent this new law? Well, because of the early Christian belief that was taking the Roman Empire by storm, that the tomb was empty. Okay, so that's the E, the empty tomb. The A, Jesus appeared. Okay, that's that 1 Corinthians 15. Who are the different people that he appeared to? Okay, so over 500 people at once. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The euphemism for having died, right? Okay, so over 500, but who are some of the others? The disciples and the Rodimaeus. Who else? The apostles. And they were all like really open to it, right? Nobody was doubting. But Thomas. No, that's actually, that's significant. That Thomas was doubting. That speaks to the evidence, too. The fact that he was skeptical. So he's appearing to skeptics. He's appearing to groups of people, over 500 at once. Peter, who had denied him. James, his brother. And then Paul. What's significant about him appearing to Paul? He was an enemy. So it wasn't just skeptics and the brother, but an enemy of the Christians. He's a significant convert. And the transformation of these men's characters. So you have men who are denying Jesus. A little girl who's questioning Peter. Aren't you one of his disciples? And he denies him to a little girl. And now you have this man of courage standing up in the public square saying, you guys put to death the Lord. You know what has happened. We've seen him alive. And thousands are converted. So how does he go from a man filled with fear to such a man of integrity and courage. He's transformed. And not just him, the Apostle Paul. And beaten and scourged and whipped and shipwrecked several times. Stoned. So when you you put all the evidence together, here's the historical facts that everybody has to explain. The fatal torment of Jesus. The burial of Jesus in a rich man's tomb. He's buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. What's the the significance about him being buried in a rich man's tomb? Yeah, usually they weren't. Who is Joseph of Arimathea in history? What do we know about him? And he's one of the members of the Jewish ruling council. So he's well known. Everybody knows Joseph of Arimathea. They all know Nicodemus too, the teacher of Israel. These guys are leaders of the Jews. Everybody knew where he was laid. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. Okay. Well, besides the fact that it's fulfillment of Isaiah 53... And their messianic description there, which I think is pretty significant. And so everybody recognized where the tomb was. It would be real easy for the Jews to say, hey, this is where he was buried. So um, one of the most popular uh, writers who's an agnostic about this, who lives in North Carolina, teaches at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, Bart Ehrman. Here's, here's a quote of his. Now, he's responding to other critics who are atheists, but aren't biblical critics. And so, as an expert who's a biblical critic, here's what he writes. At a reputable university, of course, professors can't simply teach anything. They need to be academically responsible and reflect the views of scholarship. That's probably why there's no mythicists, at least to my knowledge. Teaching religious studies at accredited universities in North America Europe, their views are not widely seen as academically respectable by members of the academy. The mythicists are the ones who say, Jesus never really lived. Richard Carrier has written a book, I think it was in 2014, just released it, and he's trying to propagate Jesus wasn't a real historical figure. As Since he wasn't a real historical figure, he could have never really you know, rose from the dead because he never really lived. It was just borrowed from pagan mystery religions. It just shows the ignorance. And this is the same uh, debate that um, a lot of the new atheists are promoting. So this is just not their realm of expertise. So they're speaking to things they don't know. So I don't go around pretending to know a lot about surgery and, and commenting on that as if I'm a surgeon one of my criticisms of them is just stick to the areas you actually know something about that is something they don't know anything about so the, the main thing that they bring up uh the reason that Bart Ehrman and Gerd Ludeman and some of the others who are actually skeptics or agnostic or atheists their main reason for not accepting the resurrection is because it's a miracle They say, you know, I have no good naturalistic hypothesis. It just couldn't have been a resurrection. That's a miracle. Well, that presupposes miracles can't happen. So what's your argument for that? They don't really have one. So I just don't think God exists. That's what they throw out. Okay, so what are your arguments that God doesn't exist? They might throw out a couple lame things that are really easy to to, uh, answer. Here, I'll give you one example of an argument they give. And this was actually raised in the debate a couple weeks ago that I showed in my class. The guy says, who made God? You know, I asked the child's question. Unless you can answer who made God, just put it back a step. If you're going to say that God exists, well, who made God? To which the philosopher, the Christian philosopher, Christian apologist, we often say, yeah, that is a child's question. You shouldn't act like a child. Okay, so it's like asking, why are bachelors unmarried men? That's just the definition. So everybody's definition of God is that he is the uncaused cause. So he doesn't need anybody to make him. So these are the things I list here. Jesus was fatally tormented. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. The tomb was empty. He appeared to groups after his death. Everybody acknowledges these things. So this is where you get into like, oh, they maybe were just hallucinating, it was wish fulfillment, something like that. These are their naturalistic hypotheses to try to explain it. The disciples were transformed. Even the skeptics recognize the disciples. Were, they were different, very different, after whatever they had encountered, whatever happened and another thing everybody has to account for is the origin of various new beliefs the two significant ones were an individual rising from the dead so the jews general belief was a general resurrection at the end of time not an individual messiah rising from the dead before everything ended that was a new belief to them so where did that come from the only thing that actually accounts for that is that jesus actually rose from the dead all the early converts, all of them, they were all Jews. And they changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Now that's really significant. There's one thing that marks a Jew, it's that you keep the Sabbath day and you keep it holy. So to change from the Saturday worship to the Lord's day, they start calling it, to Sunday, that's really significant. What caused that change? I think the resurrection of Jesus the only sufficient historical explanation for that. In general. There's an anti-supernatural bias that these critics have. Basically meaning, if it's supernatural, we can't use that as part of our explanation. If there's a miracle, we just can't allow it. Now I want you to think about each of these lines of evidence that I just mentioned. Okay, So what I have here is the evidence itself is not supernatural in nature. Is being fatally tormented supernatural? No, that's not supernatural. How about a tomb being empty? Is that supernatural? Also not supernatural. So the evidence that they're gainsaying, none of that evidence is supernatural. Being buried in a rich man's tomb, also not supernatural, right? Appearing to groups after your death. Okay, well, this is is something that is plausibly supernatural. So they have to have a naturalistic explanation for the disciples seeing something. Now, what they would say is wish fulfillment or maybe they're hallucinating. But even the critics do say they experienced something after his death. But they have to have a naturalistic way of saying it. So in itself, the miracle is that he was raised from the dead. That's the difficulty with the mess. Yeah, all seeing the exact same thing. That's right. That's the difficulty. That's really hard to do for 40 days. The problem with saying that it was written hundreds of years after is we actually have manuscripts that are super early. And so the way that textual transmission works, even the most critical New Testament scholars are all saying this all occurred within the lifetime. But that's why I'm using their evidence from 1 Corinthians 15, saying this early Christian creed was within a decade. And then if you understand that 1 Corinthians is written within a decade of Jesus' death and then understanding that he received this creed before that was written. So all historical accounts are actually written after the fact. There's about 25 different ancient documents that are non-Christian sources that testify and corroborate the accounts of the New Testament, including the Jewish Talmud. So even the Jews testify certain things about Jesus. So one of the great things about this book, the historical Jesus, there's a whole chapter on ancient non-Christian sources that testify about the life and death of Jesus and a lot of different facts about his death. So there's archaeological things in there as well. Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus are three prominent ancient historians, but there's also Pliny the Younger. So remember, these are the critics. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, this is what they call Jesus in the Talmud, Was hanged. For forty days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He's going to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So here's an ancient Jewish record of what happened. So they wanted to stone him, but they weren't allowed to do that. He ended up being hanged on the eve of Passover. This is corroborating what the New Testament says. It's amazing the details that are corroborated. I don't know if any of you have uh, looked into the evidence of the Shroud of Turin. Now we don't need the Shroud of Turin to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But this past weekend I was at a professional conference of scholars who are apologists, and one of them is uh, one of the leading Shroud scholars. And he held a, a conference up in the state of Washington where the leading Shroud scholars all got together and I think for three days presented all the evidence, all the papers. And three of the guys were former atheists. And they, were, they did their work on scientific studies, investigating the Shroud to try to find a naturalistic explanation for, OK, what is this image that appears on this cloth? What people say it is, is the burial shroud of Jesus, what he was wrapped in and i'm going to read a summary of what they found on this burial shroud again we don't need that in order to prove that jesus rose from the dead but there's no scientific explanation for a lot of the things they have with the burial shroud it's a linen that has a double head image of the crucified man repose in death that reveals the front and back of his body so here's some of the things related to the shroud itself they're trying to date okay is this a late shroud is it an early shroud Samples of pollen discovered on the cloth point to an origin in Palestine, possibly as far back as the first century. Analysis of the cloth and weave discovered the shroud is compatible with first century cloth. There was also a lepton of Pontius Pilate placed over the eyes of the man in the burial shroud, according to the uh, computer analysis that they're able to do with the spectrography. It's been an ongoing source of scientific investigation. They've had uh, a lot of different well-qualified scientists the first group in 1978 conducted a battery of non destructive tests. Now, here's some of the very odd things of the man who, whoever was in this burial shroud. The blood stains on the shroud were real blood. It was not an image caused by paint, dye, powder, or any foreign substance. The image is composed of oxidized, dehydrated, different fibrous cloth. But for some reason, there's the effects of a scorch on it that there's no scientific explanation. The man's injuries. Whoever was buried in this, he had a series of punctures throughout his scalp from many sharp objects, a seriously bruised face, a horrible whipping, over 100 wounds from the beating of been count on the shroud, abrasions on both shoulders from a rough, heavy object, contusions on both knees. Both men had normal wounds associated with crucifixion, punctured feet and wrists. Strangely, both men escaped having their legs broken, as was normal. Both had ch- post-mortem chest wounds from which blood and watery fluid came out on this shroud. Both men were buried hastily in fine linen and buried individually. The scientist's report includes, I quote, no known natural causes that could account for the shroud's image. In scientific terms, the image is a mystery. Perhaps even more amazing, the shroud has no bodily decomposition. Whoever was buried in it, there was no evidence of any bodily decomposition, indicating the body exited the cloth after a relatively short internment. According to the scientific team pathologist, the body was probably not unwrapped, as indicated that the fact that the blood stains were still intact on the burial cloth. Such an action would have disturbed the blood stains. Even more interesting is the possibility the image was caused by some sort of light or heat scorch that emanated from a dead body in the state of rigor mortis. And we, again, we don't need that evidence. I just think it's really cool. Any uh, DNA evidence would be difficult because what do you need? You need an original sample by which to compare it. Yes, there is blood. Yep. Well, they knew there's blood stains on the shroud, but I don't know whether the DNA would have decomposed. Yeah, they're trying, they're trying to do all their tests without damaging the shroud. So anyways, that's, that's kind of a cool element as far as uh, some of the evidence. Yeah, there's this place in um, Matthew 27:53. It's a really old document, and it testifies that these people rose from the dead. The lack of additional evidence, it's not evidence to the contrary. So there's no contrary evidence, but there's no evidence aside from the eyewitness testimony. But there's other eyewitness testimony to other things that, that were, have been corroborated. So, for example, Luke, if you go through the book of Luke, there's over 40 different independent archaeological discoveries that all corroborate Luke's historical document of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And so there's teams of archaeologists who have gone in skeptical, not Christian, to try to disprove different New Testament accounts. And they're like, Luke has all of these details. Somebody has this position, this part, even the sea being a certain depth in a certain area. And he's real specific. They're like, all right, we're going to go through and we're going to document and we're going to find a a mistake. And after overwhelming evidence, you have some of the leading archaeologists in the world and historians in the world who have come to see, wow, he's a historian of first rank, uncompared in the ancient world. And all these accounts end up being corroborated. And I have more on that In my book, Reading to Grow, if anybody wants to pick up, it's a really good book. (laughs) And all the proceeds, if you ever buy my book, go to feed hungry children. Mine. (laughs) Another question that usually we have to take seriously when we're discussing things with atheists is about the burden of proof. And they always want to stick the burden of proof on the Christians without recognizing they also have a burden of proof that God does not exist. And then raising a question, a lot of my, my students I train, a lot, of, a lot of times, they're really afraid that somebody's going to ask them a question they don't know the answer to. And I was like, you should not be afraid. And, and actually, when I discuss these things with people, sometimes when I actually know the answer, I don't, I intentionally say, I'll get back to you on that, even if I do know the answer, because it gives me another excuse to talk about Jesus at a later date. So I say, man, that's a really good question. Hey, let's talk about this next time. I mean, I'll do a little research even if I have the answer, but hey, now in two, three weeks, we're talking about Jesus again for a period of time. Just because you don't know the answer to it doesn't mean there isn't one. All you're admitting is you're not God. You're not omniscient. That's not a weakness in our position. So don't be afraid if somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to. Do some research, find the answer. It gives you another excuse to talk to them about Jesus. So realize the burden of proof is not just on the Christian, it's also on them. And so here's how college professors, I admonish my students who go off to secular colleges. The college professors, here's what they'll do to you. They'll be waxing eloquently about whatever theory it is and attacking the Bible or the scripture in some way. This is the way it was used in my cousin's science class. The, the professor made some absurd statement and my cousin, he says something to his buddies. He kind of like snickers and undermines what the professor is saying. And they're like, oh, I'll say it's the professor. I usually tell my students, don't argue with the professor, like the movie God is Not Dead. Some of you may have seen that movie. In real life, they're not going to be so nice as Kevin Sorbo was in that. None of my friends who are philosophy professors would have ever let a student have the stage and give them all the arguments for God's existence. So what they usually do is they turn the, the burden of proof on. So they'll, they'll make some absurd statement like, well, everybody knows the Bible's full of contradictions. What I say, if, if you really want to challenge them, ask them, Professor, you say the Bible has a lot of contradictions. Can you give me some of those? And what the professor does is he tries to shift the burden of proof back to the, the Christian students. And say, well, can you prove it's true? Now wait a second, you haven't made any claim that's true. You might actually even agree with them and And it's okay to say to the professor, i I've made no claims. what you just said it's full of contradictions. I'm just wondering what are your contradictions? The popular contradiction I hear is, well, you know one account of Jesus says that he was born in a manger and another one says he was in a house. And so you have two different gospel contradicting each other. Was he in a house or was he in a manger? If they were at different periods of his life, it could be both. You're not understanding what contradiction is. But you don't actually have to give that answer to the, the professor. Most of the time, they're just repeating what they've heard. But this a, a tactful way. Just realize, you've made no claim. The burden of proof isn't on you. They're making a claim there's contradictions. So the atheist also shares the burden of proof to prove that God does not exist. Can we prove that God exists? Absolutely. But even if you don't, it doesn't mean he doesn't exist. So I might not be able to prove the existence of a guy over in Africa. You start telling me about, can you prove he exists? No, I just met him when I was over there on a missions trip. I'm telling you about him, but I don't know what more you need. I can't find him in the phone book. It's a third world country. They don't have phone books. Does it mean he doesn't exist? No, it doesn't mean that. That doesn't follow. Do we have great arguments, guys? Yes. Some are necessarily follows that he exists. So you could familiarize yourself with some of them. The easiest one is if you've experienced God. They can't argue with your testimony. That's really hard to argue with. Like, that's your testimony. So I can't argue with that. Everybody could tell you your testimony. You could share the 30 second version or the hour long version of your testimony. Oh, he's changed me. Like, you thought I was bad before? <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, you don't even know how bad I would be. I like, have crazy thoughts and I don't act on them. You're, you're seeing me post Christ before this I was like really bad one of my students was complaining about this mean old lady who was why are you cutting across cross I was like oh yeah you should have seen her you think she's mean now you should have seen her before Jesus Can, think if Jesus wasn't restraining her think about how you were before so there's something to be said for that Okay, the Bible also testifies to uh, Christ to God's existence there's a, a lot of different arguments the cosmological argument not all scientists say everything popped into existence a finite time ago what explains that Okay, That's one of the cosmological arguments. And there's also a vertical one. What is the cause of everything currently existing? What accounts for the current existing of everything right now? Even with Big Bang Cosmology, this is one of the things that um, Josh Spencer mentioned last week. He says, the good thing about Big Bang Cosmology is it gets you back to a finite universe. I think he he was mentioning something about that. So they might not take our position on creation, but even they have to admit that everything sprang into existence out of nothing. That kind of sounds like Genesis 1 to me. If it's corroborating the same thing, okay, there's at least something there. What accounts for that? So these are some of the different arguments for God's existence, but the problems with hallucination are many. You can't share a dream. That's the the psychological nature of hallucination. If somebody's on drugs, when their buddy's hallucinating and they're, they're hallucinating, they're not hallucinating the same thing. That's just not the nature of these appearances. We're not drug-induced hallucinations that people experience. So like I said, he, he hung around for 40 days. This disproves the hallucination theory. They're radically changed as a result. The myth hypothesis. Now, he, This was a, a meme circulating on Facebook. Okay, we're coming up on a time of year when the resurrection of a virgin-born child whose followers called the Good Shepherd and the Messiah is celebrated. He had 12 disciples, perform miracles, sacrifice himself for the peace of the world was buried in a tomb only to rise from the dead three days later. His followers went on to celebrate the resurrection every year. And this celebration eventually became what we call Easter. What the meme is, you thought this was about Jesus. No, this is about Mithras. Jesus' account is borrowed from the Mithras, pagan mystery religions. I looked at the story of Mithras, a great book called The Gospel in the Greeks. They broke down all these pagan mystery religions. Mithras was born out of a rock. That's different than being born of a virgin. He never had 12 disciples and never sacrificed himself for world peace. He is never called the Good Shepherd in any of the accounts we have. Never called Messiah. And there's not even any evidence that he lived or died. The Gospel in the Greeks by Ronald Nash is one of the best books refuting all these different theories. And they go into great detail. A friend of mine just presented a paper on this yesterday. He's got a lot of different YouTube videos. I'm sure he has one on this. But, uh, Phil Fernandez is his name. Did Jesus really exist? Refuting the Jesus myth hypothesis. And so Dr. Uh, Phil Fernandez Institute of Biblical uh, Studies, I think that's his uh, his ministry, but he has all these lectures refuting these different myths. So there's a ton of problems. There's something even more damning than all the problems about the fact that if you actually look at the details, they actually don't map on to the Jesus myth story. Two significant problems that I see. One, if you actually look at when these myths arose, they're all after the New Testament was written. So it's really hard to borrow from things when they were written hundreds of years before when the myths were written. Oh yeah, you borrowed from me because you knew I was going to write about that in a couple hundred years. If there was any borrowing, it was the pagan mystery religions were borrowing from the Christians, not vice versa. So that's a really significant problem. Uh, A second major problem is the differences are superficial. They're actually not there when you actually read it. Like, okay, so-and-so was conceived of a virgin. And I'm reading his account. I'm like, okay, so a snake appears to his mom and the snake impregnates her. That's not a virgin birth. Sorry. I want you to just answer my description, okay, as I, as I tell you about this. Somebody is elected in 46 to Congress. In 1960, as president, his vice president's last name was Johnson. He was assassinated by a lone gunman who had three names of 15 letters and the, the, this assassin was killed by a gunshot wound before his trial. Who am I talking about? Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Actually, that is true about John F. Kennedy, but it's also true about Abraham Lincoln. Same thing is true of Abraham Lincoln as John F. Kennedy. So, no, I notice I said 46 and 60. I didn't say whether it was 18 or 19. That's why I left those off. Does that mean that because it occurred to Lincoln, it didn't occur... In the case of Kennedy? No. I'll give you one more, one more interesting one, okay? In mid-April, this enormous ship that they called unsinkable made a transatlantic voyage, and it struck an iceberg. And due to having a lack of lifeboats, the majority of the people on the ship perished. What am I talking about? The Titanic, that's a description of the Titanic. But there was actually a book written in 1898 called The Futility, where it happens to this ship called the Titan. The exact same thing. A decade before the Titanic. The ship in the the book's called the Titan. Like, hey, uh, i got a great idea. Let's do the same thing in real life. And we'll call it the unsinkable ship. Now, isn't that interesting? So... What is the fact that you can point to a source earlier, a fictional account earlier, show about the historical event? It doesn't show anything, does it? You actually still have to weigh the evidence for whether the Titanic had those things. And that's the same thing you have to do. Our evidence for the resurrection is rooted in real history. It's corroborated by Christian and non-Christian sources. And we have confidence that he is risen. Some of you who are older probably know who Chuck Colson is. Maybe the younger crowd doesn't know. He just recently died as well. He has this great quote, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. They proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of us. The most powerful men in the world. They couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me twelve apostles could keep alive for forty years? Absolutely impossible. Dave Javacky, some of you might know who he is. He's a Christian author, former baseball player, and he came to speak at our church. He ended up uh, having cancer in the bone of his uh, left arm, and he had to have his arm removed. And so he was talking about after he came to visit our church. He was telling one time he went fishing, and this kid's looking at him and. You know, he casts this reel out there and he sticks it in a little stump. He's trying to wind it up or whatever. And the kid asks him, man, have you ever even caught anything like that? Like, that's got to be really hard. Cast it in a reel and hold it with your little stump. He says, oh, let me tell you, one time I caught one this big. <laughs> so think of the nature of these stories, okay? The nature of the character of these men. Okay? The conspiracy theories is they made up, they fabricated this crazy story. These are fishermen. Even a fisherman couldn't make up what they're telling in this account. This is way too big a fish story. So it's just the nature of man. Now people bring up the point, you know, what about 9-11? Those people died for something like their religion. Why couldn't these guys have held to that? And here's the, the line I always memorize, okay? People may die for something that they believe is true, but no one will die for something they know is a lie. You know, there's actually another uh, parallel. If I told you about a, a, a giant plane uh, flying into a giant building in New York, and I told you all these people died as a result of that, everybody was killed on board, uh, all of us think, having lived in a lifetime of September 11th, another plane did that after World War II in 1946. It's the same description. It flew into the Empire State Building. Okay, see, there's a parallel, but th- these are independent events in history. But there are parallels, yeah. But you have to weigh the historical facts. This what I did as a principal at a high school all the time is I get, get the group of kids in there, and I'd see how long it took for their their stories to stick, and one of them start turning on each other. Okay, your story isn't lining up with so and so's, and your story is very different. And they start bending the story, but that's not what these guys did. They all held to the faith even under death because they actually had seen Jesus alive. So how do we know Jesus died? Well. We've already mentioned it several times. He was fatally tormented. So they've done a study of the General American Medical Association March 1986. Further, the disciples, when they saw blood and water come out of his side, they would think, wow, look at that miracle. Well, medically, they know, okay, well, this is just what happens when you die of asphyxiation. Your lungs fill with fluid. So there's nothing medically miraculous about blood and water coming out of his side. So these are professional executioners Jesus didn't just pass out. But think of the absurdity. Suppose he did, okay? We could demonstrate he didn't, but suppose he did. Then he has to appear limping, overcome the guards, on the point of death, needing immediate medical attention to survive. But he's got to persuade them he's overcome death in the grave and persuade them all to hold fast to that, okay? It's not very plausible. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And then where's his body? Whatever happened to Jesus? the critics should have been able to find it. And they had the power and the ability to do so. Just remember, the greatest feat in history, fatal torment, empty tomb, appearances, transformation. The evidence is clear. He is risen. Have a good night.